0: Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Ramon Mitchell, who's a buyer's agent and founder of Galt Co. Ramon is a pretty understated, humble guy, but he's a very fascinating, highly educated guy, and he provides some great insights into some of his advocacy work with property managers and on strata committees as well, and we dive into some property market, economics, fundamentals and due diligence and look for opportunities for investors. He gives us some great advice on setting goals and reviewing our portfolio and just some awesome general comments on the property market and its direction for the next little while as well. It's a really illuminating interview and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Here's Ramon. Ramon Mitchell, thank you for joining me on Geared for Growth.
1: Mike, thanks for having me. Pleasure to
0: be here pleasure to be on the other side of the mic as well ramon looking forward to our chat today for people who haven't heard of you can you let us know who you are and what you do sure
1: uh, my name's uh, ramon mitchell and i'm the uh, founder and director of galt and co property advisory and we're a buyers uh, advocacy firm
0: beautiful mm. and Let's get a little bit of uh, background into young Ramon. Sure. Uh, what posters were on the bedroom wall growing up?
1: Well, I think uh, to answer that, you've got to cast your mind back to uh, such movies as uh, Oliver Twist. Uh, I, was oh. at, I was at boarding school at the age of seven, and um, my uh, my dad at that point was a Hong Kong citizen and doing quite a lot of travel. So um, myself and two older brothers were in boarding school. So... Um, if we could have had posters um, without getting the uh, the meter ruler across the fingers, I probably would have plastered them with dinosaurs. I was absolutely right. absolutely fascinated with them at the time. So,
0: dinosaur mad, but yeah, not worth uh, not worth the retribution of the ruler. No, I'm picturing a a, a Jack Whitehall sort of travel with my father situation here. Um, how did you get started in property, and what was your first investment?
1: Yeah, well, my family's uh, been in property really, for as long as I've been around and prior to that. So I guess you could say it's in the blood. Uh, Dad was uh, an architect for many years and a property developer. Um, my uh, oldest brother had his own um, um, real estate agency and um, middle brother was a carpenter and builder. So we're sort of all orbiting around the same uh, the same industry. Mm. So my first role was actually working with my oldest brother. And at that time, um, this was back in the late Was it 1990s? um, We were selling a lot of the Australand sites around Sydney, so such sites as um, King Street Wharf, uh, Finger Wharf, Ullamaloo, Paddington Barracks, those sorts of properties. You
0: know, Uh, real backwaters.
1: Yeah, so that was uh, (laughs) it. Was a real uh, it was a real sort of introduction into the you know I suppose the 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 breadth and scope of uh, the different. Um, styles of architecture and building and and um, you know development at the time. So it was it was a really interesting introduction into property.
0: And and I guess across your your professional life, you've you've had quite a lot of experience within the property sector, doing a lot of different roles with project marketing, obviously working. Um, with your brother can you run us through some of the positions that you've held and and any sort of key insights into the 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 property market or the property industry at large
1: yeah well look I think I think that introduction into project marketing really um really kind of cemented in my mind the value of treating your buyers like gold um back at that stage it was a pretty tough time in the market and buyers were fairly scarce and there were quite a few developments sort of springing up around Sydney and um You know, buyers were fairly few and far between. I think at that point, it was really about understanding the importance of, you know, following up and developing a relationship, taking the time to get to know the buyer's needs and then working with them to find the right property to suit. So I think that's probably where I had the sort of the early, uh, you know, the early sort of nucleus of uh, becoming a buyer's agent down the track.
0: I was going to say that that sort of skill set is common to buyers agents at the moment, but perhaps not project marketers. Maybe I have a little bit of a dim view of things, but that doesn't seem to be the way that it runs at the moment.
1: No, well, I think you know, I think for for people depending on when they get into the industry and at what point in the cycle they're in, they'll, you know, they can only sort of deal with and, and learn the the, the the market that they're in and the conditions that they're in. So for people entering into a you know a rapidly rising market. Um, in you know in the I'm talking about the selling side here you know the, obviously the difficulty is in sourcing listings, mm-hmm. um, um, not so much in the selling of those. So you know unfortunately for buyers. Um, you know, the selling agent can only sell their property to one person and the and the multitude of buyers have been through that property, um, you know, generally don't get the attention they're probably hoping for. And I say that respectfully because, you know, there's some fantastic selling agents out there. But uh, I think, you know, truth be told, the nature of the business is that the focus goes on the few rather than on the many and the many are sort of left to their own devices. Hence the um, uh, the evolution of the, uh, the buyer's advocacy industry.
0: Yeah, exactly, and and I'm interested in sort of in talking about your experience in property. You've 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 done it all. Obviously, mm-hmm. the are um, just talking about the the project marketing. You've done property management. Still do you know auction advocacy, research, negotiation, strategy for property investors. Is there one particular thing you point out as being most passionate about?
1: Look, you know, without wanting to sound sort of too cliche,d it's it's really about the the, the relationships that you form with people along the way. Um, you know, I think really being there for clients to the point where they see, you know, they they see us, and I'm referring to those of us in the buyer's advocacy industry in general. Um, you know, where we get to the point where they see us as their trusted advisor and their sounding board whenever they need. Um, and you know, rather than sort of feeling like they're on the clock for everything that they're in contact with us for, that that we can be the sounding board for them and and provide, you know, provide the snippets of advice and guidance and and sort of point them in the right the way in the, in the right way along the way. Um, on an ongoing basis. And that's something I've really, really valued along the way. So um, in in terms of where I find I'm getting the most um, satisfaction from that is probably working with uh, home buyers.
0: Yep. So owner ox?
1: Yeah, owner ox. Yeah. I think it's, you know, we we tend to be working with them at a point where it's a fairly big transition for them. Um, You know, first home buyers are sort of young and fresh and a bit wet behind the ears. And you know all all go 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 and maybe needing a little bit of a you know a tempered hand and a bit of guidance to point in the right direction and you know, families upsizing, downsizing, relocating, it's it's a pretty stressful time, and I think one of the one of the aspects of our service that's often not mentioned is is the support and guidance that we provide at a you know at an emotional level for for clients who are really at a stressful time. So it's a challenging it's a challenging space for them, and I think if we can provide not only the uh, you know the research and guidance and the and the technical knowledge but also the humanistic side where the client really feels supported and in, in, in a genuine way, I think that's I think that's a win for everyone.
0: Well, you've got sort of all the bases covered there. Obviously, being a, a property expert and uh, and and quite gifted with the psychology as well. Um, for people that don't know, I I really want to sort of take a moment to to get a bit of a an insight into Ramon. Uh, this is a bit of a long form podcast, so we can uh, we can indulge a, a little bit. There's more to you than meets the eye. For example. <laughs> You speak French for some reason. We'll, we'll need to get to that. Your third degree, black belt in Hapkido. Um, I couldn't even describe what that is, whether it's the one with the mask and the sticks and the rolling or is it some other thing? What's what's going on with all these little, uh, little pockets of the personality?
1: Yeah, well, let's open Pandora's box then, shall we? Good. <laughs> um, well, look, I, uh, at the end of high school, had the opportunity to um, go and live in Switzerland for a number of years and study. And um, so, hence, um, I lived in a, a Swiss-French um, canton, the canton valet, and um, that's the, uh, you know, the, the, the French is the, the spoken language there. So I um, quickly immersed myself in the language there and, and learnt it pretty quickly. And um, so that was that was three years spent in, uh, in that particular part of the world and, and um, probably some of the fondest memories I've, I've got still from um, being in Switzerland. Um, So the French is probably still rusty. So please don't ask me to rattle off. uh,
0: (laughs) I was actually, I've (laughs) been learning a little bit myself (laughs) as someone obsessed with the with the tour and I, we had um Philippe Brack on the podcast who's a proper Frenchman some time ago and I was I was too nervous to drop anything. <laughs> and I think I think that's probably for the best. So we'll, we'll leave that alone. Done. Um what about your uh your butt kicking degrees?
1: Oh the uh the Hapkido, yeah. Mm. Well I've gotta say I could I couldn't tell you what percentage of my physios mortgage I've paid off over the eighteen years that I did <laughs> uh Hapkido. But uh, the irony—the irony there is—my physio was also the head of our um, uh, of our right, Northern Beaches Hap Keto gym. So uh, I suppose when uh, if business was ever tight, we'd uh, he would call us onto the floor for sparring. And uh, <laughs> business is good.
0: That's so, a nice little racket.
1: Yeah. So look, it was um, you know I really enjoyed doing that, and that's you know 18 years on the trot. I think was a pretty pretty solid go with mm. an amazing group of people, and you know you. I don't know for, for people who, who do martial arts and have done it for a long time will understand you pick your club and you stick with it. It's not a matter of sort of drifting around and sort of going club to club. So they become family. And, um, you know, I think some of the, you know, some of the learnings along the way is about respect and, you know, just getting rid of ego and being able to sort of trust in others and develop discipline along the way. And I mean, they're the sorts of qualities that really, you know, that really stick with stick with you sort of and transcend the, you know, the training environment. And
0: if boarding school didn't uh, instill all of that in you, you've got that uh, couple of decades worth of the martial arts as well. So I'm sure you're pretty squared away. Um, now there's a there's a tenderer side other than the sort of butt kicking stuff. Um, you, you've you've done a lot of work with Wayside Chapel, and that's something that I just happened a, upon a, a documentary a little while ago. We sort of mentioned I, I mentioned that to you when we mm. caught up a few months ago, and um, I, I just thought that was a really amazing story. Can you share us a bit about your involvement there and what that's all about?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, look, I think at the heart of it, I mean, who are we if we're not? You know, if we're not looking externally to you know others other than ourselves in what we do, and I think if we can find a way to do that and incorporate that into our lives in in whatever way that is and to whatever degree that is, then I think it's you know it's 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 a better way for us all to find a bit more meaning in what we do. So, um, I I originally started doing um, um, telephone counselling with Lifeline, and um, off off the back of that, I wanted to, um, to do some further studies to help me. Better support some of the people I was coming into contact with, because um, as you can understand, people who are ringing Lifeline are at, at you know, various crises in their life and, and are looking yeah. for some, some pretty immediate support. And I felt, you know, I felt sort of under under equipped to handle some of the you know some of the the calls we we're getting. So I, I, I trotted off and did um, did a post grad in um, counselling and psychotherapy, and um, following that, um, had the opportunity to do um, volunteering at Wayside in Potts Point. And, um, and what that was 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 offering um, crisis counselling to some of the regulars who who uh, would come to Wayside on a daily basis. And um, there was also at the time um, a youth outreach service, which which uh, of an evening we would um, we would um, go to the various known hangouts in Potts Point, Darlinghurst, uh, down a sort of Cook and Phillip Park there at uh, wollamaloo and. Um, Surrey Hills to where you know to where the you know the regulars would would spend time and the food trucks and the and the cafes and those sorts of things, and what we provided really was a, a familiar face amongst a sea of strangers, for the at-risk youth, youth and the homeless. And you know even though you know we we didn't need to go and approach them to check in if they were okay, just us being there, they would see that there was someone there if they needed it, and that was you know that was you know providing support and comfort for them. Um, and also, you know, one of the one of the key, you know, the key outcomes we we're looking for is to identify any new, new faces on the street, any new youth who'd come into into town, because the statistics um, were pretty horrifying in terms of, you know, how long it took for a new face to sort of be dragged into the, you know, the sort of the, you know, the the underside of that that. Um, you know that particular mark that particular area so what what we would try to do is to identify these people and move them into supported services and get them back out of the area or back to their families or wherever they would come from as quickly as possible
0: that's pretty cool and and as you say that's that's pretty key in breaking the cycle so good on you for yeah. being involved in that and uh, yeah. if you haven't checked that out then by all means um have a google and just check out some of the great work that's um that's being done there now this is a property podcast yes. so where I know that was my fault. I, I was very interested, but we're going to need to talk about um, property. Otherwise, there's going to be pitchforks and burning torches eventually. T- tell us about your exposure to property, pers- personally. Obviously, you've you've worked. Um, know with with your old man and and your brother and you're in the industry now but where are you at with your investing are you acquiring assets with a goal in mind or are you putting all the effort into the business what's going on with you
1: yeah well I think it's um, it's about taking your own advice and so um, you know my wife and I are we're focusing on um, you know implementing a strategy that we've we've put together uh, and that's to you know acquire uh, growth assets and you know use that to support our you know our overall wealth accumulation as we as we grow and build our family um, you know with the view in in the end to have you know to be able to have some um, passive income in retirement that doesn't come you know, just from uh, assets outside of property so you know in in taking my own advice of there are a couple of assets I acquired along the way prior to um, putting the strategy in place that that we've uh, sort of bit the bullet and divested uh, one of those was a commercial strata suite that I held over in uh, neutral Bay um, that was great for cash flow and and because it was a new building at the time you know, you know the depreciation etc but it, it just wasn't benefiting from the growth that we found some of the residential counterparts were so um, we divested that um, had a Northern Beaches unit which which had benefited from a good run previously, so we, we sold that. <clears throat> and then uh, probably the hardest of all was a um, a, uh, a property in uh, Berowra that my brothers and I co-owned. And um, you know because you know as family members you all sort of head off in different directions at different times, we made the we made the decision that it probably wasn't um, really benefiting us in the way we we were all hoping for. So we 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 sold it and um, put that money towards. Um, that money towards uh, our, our current plan. So we're now holding uh, assets in uh, major cap cities, um, particularly Sydney and Adelaide. And uh, I suppose next cab off the rank will be a, um, likely be a regional investment.
0: Nice. So yeah, um, yeah you certainly uh, are getting stuck in and in- involved and you sort of have to be, it's like, you don't want a, a chubby personal trainer. You want a buy agent <laughs> who's out there doing it. Um, I'm just it, my my ears were sort of pricked up when you we talk about div, divesting of a, of a couple of different properties. So mm. uh, we we hear a lot about people that say look, real estate's a long-term investment, the cost of getting in and out is too high with stamp duty and things like that. Is that a hard decision to make and and is it something that that perhaps we we aren't making soon enough if there're properties that are underperforming or have had a good run and there's opportunities elsewhere?
1: Well, I think it's important to, you know, to be, you know, try and remain as objective as possible with this. And on the basis that you've got a plan that's sound and you've, you know, you've got the advice, you know, the, the requisite advice in putting that plan together and it's appropriate for you, then really you've got to stick to it. And part of that is, you know, in, in making your in, your acquisitions along the way, is you do that based on on sound research and advice. And, you know, those acquisitions can be a combination of, you know, short, medium, long-term holds. And yes, whilst you know, whilst you know, I personally and as a, as a business have a, uh, you know, espouse a strategy of generally long-term buy and hold. If we're acquiring, acquiring assets in a market that is uh, got a shorter growth uh, growth cycle and will only sort of show value uh, for a certain period of time, and the indicators point towards that reaching the end of that cycle, then you know, as part of the ongoing review of your portfolio and. Assessment of your plan and where you are in your overall plan, you've got to take those decisions that's best in the interest of the of the overall portfolio, and that may be to divest and and redirect those resources into better performing assets.
0: And and so you mentioned having a portfolio plan and reviewing that plan. One of the big themes, I guess, on the podcast is is don't just focus on the property, start with the plan and have the properties to fit that plan. But we don't talk a lot about reviewing them and seeing how they fit with the plan and how they're performing. How often should we be doing that? And what, what are some of the key sort of metrics and considerations when we're reviewing the properties that we've got?
1: Well I think uh, it was it Stephen Covey that said begin with the end in mind I mean you've got to understand what your overall objectives are you put together your plan you've got your plan in place and you've got to understand what the what the national property market is doing and where each of the various markets are in their respective cycles and then you implement that first step now implementation of the first step and whatever time frame that takes will take will take time to then acquire and settle down and place a tenant and then in terms of, of when we should review that typically you want to be reviewing it at least annually mm-hmm. because you're reviewing the performance of the asset you're reviewing the performance of um, the local and wider market and you're also reviewing what the national market's doing to identify further opportunities but all that's got to be held in context of where you are in your overall plan and your own personal situations which you know things things change along the way and and you know the circumstances can um, can change both both intentionally and unintentionally and it's important to relate the two are we on track are we ahead are we behind Do we need to defer the next step how's the asset performing is it the right time to do the next stage so these are all the sorts of questions that should be percolating to the top at least on an annual basis and that sit down is generally done with with an advisor, now, whether that's your financial advisor, or a financial advisor and your property advisor, and the tax tax planner together as a as a group. But certainly getting some advice from a you know a trusted, licensed, independent uh, advisor to help, you know to help sort of work through these uh, through the plans and um, your next steps.
0: And if you're due for a blog for November, December, let us know if you put that one together about tips to review the the portfolio and uh, and tag yeah. geared for growth. Um, that's something I'm sure people, a lot of people would would benefit from. Talk, yeah. So we've we've done some of the, I guess the what I like to call the, the the veggies, the the planning and the reviewing. I want to talk about some of the some of the dessert or the lollies. What what sort of properties typically are you recommending to investors as as A grade. Investment properties. This is a term that sort of sprung up in the last little while. I want to know what that means for you. Well,
1: look, an A-grade investment property. Again, we've got to we've got to take this in context of you know an investment asset that's right for the client. And so, you know, an A-grade investment property could be you know a, um, a low a low density freestanding asset in a major cap city in a blue chip area. Equally, an A-grade asset could be for someone who's a little bit further through their investment life cycle and is looking for an asset with, you know, a higher than average income. Don't necessarily need the growth, and for them, um, sourcing an A-grade asset may fall within uh, the commercial asset class. So again, we've just got to be a little bit careful. And I know we could, we could we could push this podcast out to you know 24 hours if we really do the deep dive. But I think in general terms, you know, we've got to understand at all times when we're talking about investment. Um, You know, your listeners need to understand that it's an investment relative to their individual circumstance or situation. And so, you know, what constitutes an A-grade in investment can, you know, can sort of permeate right through all the different asset classes and asset types. But generally speaking, if we're talking in high level terms, things you want to assess are, of course, um, your local market conditions. Um, local market conditions. You want to understand um, where that particular uh, market is in its cycle, and once you're clear on that, you're clear on some of the fundamentals within that market, and you've decided that's the right market for you based on what you want to achieve. And you're looking at an asset level, um, an asset level um, uh, investigation. You then start looking at your location. So typically, you want to make sure that the um, the A grade investment's got to have all the things that um, your tenant is going to want access to transport, infrastructure, lifestyle amenity, you know, how, and we hear the term sort of bandied around a bit, how walkable is the property? Uh, you know, for for every errand that the, your tenant runs, you know, if they're going out to get a paper or milk or coffee or go to the shops, you know, the more they have to get in the car to do that, the more of a hassle it is, and the more likely that tenant's going to get sick of it. And, you know, when their lease expires, uh, move on. So that translates then to uh, vacancy, um, release, reletting, and remarketing costs, and it puts a dent in the in the overall yield of the asset. By comparison, if you found a property that's going to be in high demand, it's relatively scarce, so there's not a lot of them, um, and. You know, the vacancy rates in that particular pocket are, are pretty low, meaning that, um, you know, they're, they're letting quite quickly and the turnover is quite low. That means that tenants are generally happy in those sorts of properties and more likely to stay longer. So that, as compared to the other, with the low walkability factor, is a, is more of a, uh, an A-grade asset. So, you know, location, security of the area, how close are we to public transport? Um, you know what? What's the surrounds like? Is the property backing on or Bunnings car park, or is it a nice tree-lined street with you know low-density residential in the surrounds? So the position is 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 very important. And then from that standpoint, when you're into the property itself, you know there's a whole range of attributes that you want to look at to determine whether that whether that property itself is uh, a good quality asset.
0: I think that is. A really a great answer because the question is sort of wrong in a way, um, and you've highlighted that really well, that an A-grade uh, investment property is completely subjective and needs to really line up with the goals of the investor and what sort of, I guess, constitutes their portfolio at the moment. So so a, a really good background there and some and some good key fundamentals as well. What about from, I guess, a little bit more of, um, I don't know if the word's theoretical, but p- perhaps a little bit more of a macro view. Are there, are there things that you look at when you're doing your due diligence um, on locations like vacancy rates? We've sort of touched on you know days on markets to see whether you can, you can necessarily buy something that's, that's going to move quickly or negotiate well. Are there there's some tips that you can give investors for when they're looking at a property?
1: Well, I think, you know, there's – there's when you're looking at any particular market, um, you know, there's – there's from an investment standpoint, you know, there's really only – there's really only, a, you know, a, a small number of metrics you want to be thinking about or indicators, and they are, um, you know, supply and demand are some of the – one of the key ones that's usually top of mind for a lot of people, and that's something that's certainly, certainly, um, you know, on the forefront of people's minds at the moment, particularly in Sydney and market, off the back of, you know, the APRA changes and, and – um, you know, the election, et cetera. So supply and demand, um, you look at uh, affordability, um, how much confidence is there in the market because that drives behaviour. Um, you know, we are, as human nature is, we all, we all tend to like what other people like and want what people want. So um, confidence begets confidence. Um, at an economic level, we're looking at money supply, you know, what's going on at a government level. Are they spending, you know, is, is the private sector spending? Um, because that drives, you know, the, that's that sort of drives the underlying energy in any any particular market. So, um, you know, as you're coming down into sort of more of a um, a micro view, again supply and demand, and then you know looking at overall investment value. So. So, Mike, some of the points you mentioned from a supply-demand perspective, yes, vacancy rates you look at. We look at stock on market. You look at the relationship of the number of properties on market to the number of days that those properties are staying on the market before they sell um we're looking at you know such things as um you know how the population is distributed you're looking at what what median incomes are doing are they are they stagnant are they trending up you know and you know one of the topics at the moment is which i'm sure we'll get to is you know what is the market doing you know what what's the sydney market doing what's the melbourne market doing you know what's the national market doing and you know speaking specifically for sydney you know yes We've gone from this point where Sydney's gone through a a rapid growth phase. It reached a point where we all knew that it reached the end of its run and it peaked and then it moves to the back part of the cycle, which, which is what we refer to as recovery or contraction phase. And then we had the APRA changes, then we had the government, uh, you know, the election, you know, the positive sentiment coming back out. And suddenly Sydney and Melbourne are back on the, back on the go and there's talk of the market sort of recovering and, and moving again. But I think the issues that still remain at hand are things like wages growth. You know, if we're in subdued wages growth, um, you know, prices can only continue to grow so far before you know, affordability just pushes off the radar. And Sydney at the moment is somewhere around 12 times annual income. So the the wow. relationship between prices and incomes now that's that's pretty unaffordable. So you know to the question around what's the market going to do, well, you know there are there are external there are external factors that go beyond supply and demand that will put a natural lid on the rate of growth. And again, I'm I'm not an economist, but certainly when you understand the relationship of prices and incomes, it hits a point where it just becomes unaffordable.
0: Let's 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 stay on that topic. I, I'd love to to um, pick your brains a little bit more about what you see for the property market. Um, certainly, Sydney and Melbourne, which seem to run somewhat in in you know, kind of parallel as the as the major markets. Um, I'm wondering with with things like Sydney. You mentioned the um, you know the twelve times ratio of income to, to asset price. Are there a couple of things behind the scene at play? Like uh, I'm guessing that a lot of people will have um, inheritance as part of their their strategy, I suppose, like wait wait for your parents to die is not necessarily a strategy, <laughs> but but perhaps um you know there'll be parents helping people to get into the market so that will enable Sydney to grow. I mean I remember people saying you know Sydney will never grow over a million dollars in median because you know psychologically we just can't deal with that. We might have faltered for a moment but we galloped past. Now we're sort of thinking well what can it be 25 times that income ratio or or, you know can it can it happen and we just have sydney uh, a city just populated by the the one percent super wealthy that's a very long-winded question (laughs) for which i apologize (laughs) but um, do what you can with it
1: well look it's it's very hard to it's very very hard to know exactly where you know any market's going to go and we'd all love to each own that crystal ball but all we can really do is 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 look at you know what's going on right now and then look to you know the industry experts at a at an economic level the economists and the and those who do spend their you know spend their you know their working days prognosticating and what's happening in in the long term and yes you know we we can you know we can sort of hypothesize that you know the market will just keep going yes we are in a in a in a heavily restricted supply market at the moment particularly in sydney you know stock levels are probably at the lowest they've ever been or the lowest they've been since uh, 2007 and so you know as more buyers are coming into the market thanks to the, the easing of the lending restrictions and APRA, the APRA effect you know we're, we're automatically back into that you know simple supply demand continuum where you know it's a seller's market and buyers are wanting to get in so um, you know will that continue well there's really a you know, looking into the selling agents, Crystal Ball, and their pipelines. You know, they're actively out knocking on doors on a daily basis and working, working their pipeline vendor relationships. And you know, some of the, you know, some of the leading, you know, leading agencies in the in the market are talking about you know restricted supply, and their their listing activity is down by anywhere up to sort of thirty thirty five percent compared to this time last year. Wow. So what that points to is continued um, supply constraint. And you know that's going through into 2020. So if you're in a if you're in a continued sort of selling seller's market, you have to expect. And if there's a willing buyer pool, no matter whether that is diminishing as a, as a function of increased prices, if the if the buyer pool outstrips the selling you know supply of um, properties, then that will maintain upward pressure on prices. So and we're seeing
0: yeah. that in the auction clearance rates aren't we really I mean if if the spring well, right. spring listing season starts happening then then perhaps we could see them to, them soften but just the the sheer lack of property on the market means the competition is high and we've we've got a bit of price appreciation happening.
1: Yeah I mean we're we're seeing a deeper pool of buyers you know you, that's evidenced through increased numbers through properties. Yes that's you know at the at the tail end we're seeing uh, clearance rates pushing up um, you know, number of registered bidders, et cetera. Um, you know, so as the buyer competition continues to develop, you know, we're seeing properties ticking over quicker, which, which translates to um, the days on market metric. So Mm -hmm. you can monitor that. Um, and you know, that, that, that is having an effect on, on values. So, you know, capital cities in particular, um, Sydney and Melbourne have sort of swung back into, into growth. Whereas, you know, you know, they'd, um, you know their documented track record, sort of completing and then moving into that, uh, moving into the um, recovery phase, is sort of turned around on a almost on a dime, and we're now sort of back into single digit, um, single digit positive growth.
0: It seemed to happen pretty quick, that's for sure. Right. Um, I want to focus uh, the spotlight back on yourself a little bit, Ramonka. I want to talk about some of the advocacy services that you have. Obviously, being a buyer's agent, you're an advocate. Um, if you use the Victorian parlance anyway. But um, you obviously have the property management side, so you're obviously uh, quite often advocating on behalf of the landlord with that tenant and management relationship. But Hmm. you also look after people from a strata representation style (coughs) of service. Can, Can you, I guess, elaborate on what you do and why it's important to have someone look after that that knows what they're doing and not just give proxies away and not attend meetings and just kind of think i'm too busy for this rubbish
1: yeah well i think it's really catering to my uh masochistic tendencies to um, put my hand (laughs) up to to go to strata strata agms and deal with egms on behalf of clients because you know it it it, it's pretty dry stuff
0: it sounds Uh, a lot like boarding school to be honest
1: well it does really so (laughs) recapitulating past traumas is uh (laughs) that's something for another session but anyway so look look jokes aside, the, you know, investors work hard to find a property and then they work hard to negotiate and get the best price. And then what we see is, uh, and again, this is a broad generalization and, and, you know, respectfully to the the great operators out there in property management land, there are a lot of property managers out there who are, um, who are managing portfolios that are generally too big for them. Um, They're quite young and, you know, they're, they're, life typical lifespan in that role generally we're talking about in number of months as opposed to years and what will generally happen is the better operators um, jump across into sales because that is a more lucrative um, career career path for them or they burn out and so the net affect for a landlord is turnover of their property manager
0: which is the number one gripe of landlords really
1: is the number one gripe of landlords and so you know they've bought this asset they're you know they're the the languaging of the agencies is changing and they're now referring to themselves as you know investment managers and and you know uh investment advisors etc but the reality is is that you know they've the situation remains relatively unchanged it's a bit of a revolving door on who's managing the property you know a bit tongue-in-cheek but the, the landlord rings and says where's so-and-so and they go who's so-and-so and you know i've been here for three months and you know, so-and-so, I've never heard the name so-and-so. So, you know, over the course of the year, they might have, you know, two, two property managers changeovers. So the, the problem is that, um, you know, from the landlord's expectation, they want someone who's really going to manage the asset for them. And it, and the, the paradigm is such in, you know, in in most franchise network agencies, it's that the property management division is not really the core business of their business. And the focus is not on it in such a way that the, the the investor is getting investment-based advice, research-backed advice. And so, you know, where our industry differs a little bit uh, is that we look through a lens, a slightly different lens, and we are constantly looking for ways to get the most out of, of our client's investment, the performance of that asset. And that comes through, you know, really focusing on on um, screening of the tenant, you know, making sure the property is, is renovated to... Renovated to a level that's going to get the best uh, rental yield without overdoing it, and and uh, as as described, you know, overcapitalising. But to your question around strata, you know, strata um, matters and representation there. I mean, this this is another facet of the investment lifecycle of an asset where if you're buying into a strata environment, you're subject to the rules and regulations of that building. You're subject to the um, the activities and decisions made by the exec committee, by and large and on a broader front, the Owners' Corporation or your fellow owners. And so if you take your eyes off the wheel and there are decisions being made at an Exec Committee level that impact um, expenditure on the building, uh, impact bylaws being um, proposed, um, and at the point where uh, these bylaws are struck, yes, it does go out to a general vote. But if you've just handed your proxy to someone else or to the um, strata, you're not really having an effective say in the direction of, your, of the building and nor in the direction of your asset, performance of your asset. So, you know, decisions are being made and they're, they're quite significant in terms of expenditure and, and decisions that can have a material impact both on the value of the investor's asset and the building itself.
0: I'm sure there are times where you've been able to intervene and save your client from what would be a massive headache or perhaps a, a devaluation in the in their asset over time. Mm. Are there any are there any key ones that spring to mind?
1: Yeah, there's probably two current ones. One is one is just just transpired, and the other is afoot. Uh, the first one was uh, we bought into a um, a, uh, a six lot strata scheme, so a small block of six, and um, during the course of the pre-purchase, we saw that the strata managers who was engaged to look after that building really wasn't looking after it. Records were fairly incomplete. We had to do a lot of work to, um, you know, to better understand the financials and some of the decisions being made over time. Um, and during the course of um, ownership, there was uh, an issue in relation to water ingress through the common property. And um, long story short, it, our view, and certainly the view of um, some of our our associates that we've consulted with is that it was an insurable uh, an insurable event. So that had it been handled correctly, it could have been an insurance claim. Now that strata manager simply paid for rectification works out of um, owner's funds, out of what's called the capital works fund, which basically tapped those funds down to zero. Didn't submit a strata, an insurance claim. And so, and the, the owners were really sort of none the wiser. There was an issue, it was paid for, no more issue. But had they looked a little bit more closely at it, would have seen that um, that was perhaps an insurable event, and um, you know they're, they're covered for that. And so what we what we did was um, in the lead up to the next AGM, which which thankfully wasn't too far after that event, uh, we consulted with the other owners, um, pointed out some of the options available to them in terms of having more proactive strata management. Um, we voted to terminate that strata manager and appoint. A, um, a more professional and, and capable firm. And now what we're in the midst of is a retro, uh, a retrospective uh, insurance claim for those works, which, um, fingers crossed, if it goes through, will reinstate the funds to the owner's um, capital works fund, which means we can get on with some of the other plan works for the building that uh, at this stage there's nothing in account for.
0: Yeah, or not be exposed in the future, and and perhaps yeah, that we're we're talking probably thousands and thousands of dollars per individual owner that was just really yep. pilfered in a, in a way, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, and so we you know we chased up that previous strata manager multiple times to find out what was the what was the status of the um, the works and the claim, and in in the end we just got a, a one word line back saying um, no insurance claim lodged, and so you know really it's it's you know, when you've got someone who's appointed to manage your building at a strata level, really, there's a there's a duty of care there that sort of, you know, that sort of goes goes beyond just simple one-line responses several weeks later. And and you know, I think if if owners really knew um, how their buildings were being managed by some strata firms, they'd be horrified.
0: Mm, yeah, and it, but it's just one of those things that we we don't necessarily have expertise in, and we assume that the strata manager is they're all going to be roughly the same and, and do everything properly. Yeah. But it just shows the value of of experience, and that that sort of ties neatly into a question I wanted to ask you about prop tech. That's a real buzzword at the moment. Um, yeah. There's def, there's definitely a lot coming I can see for the property management industry, and I and I assume strata and and everything. Do you think it's a real threat to some of those traditional businesses like property management or do you think there's always going to be really a, a personal sort of service connection that really can't be too disrupted by technology?
1: Look, I, I think that's, that's probably hitting the nail there in that last sentence that, you know, it's, a, it's an adjunct to uh, an advice-based um, service and it's there to facilitate and um, bring efficiencies in for, for all parties, um, and you know I think it's there that can sort of work hand in hand together as opposed to you know to the exclusion of the other. And I, so I think I think you know we've seen some of these models coming through on the selling on the selling agency side, and you know some of those models have come into the Australian um, consciousness, and you know the businesses have gone out pretty quickly. Uh, one of those that we talked about was um, or that we all know about as purple bricks.
0: It was really that, good fun reading the comments from aid, agents, you know, don't <laughs> let the door hit you on the way out, sort of yeah,
1: stuff. Yeah, because you know, the bane the bane of a selling agent's existence, you know, a good selling agent and have someone come in and who, you know, really doesn't have the track record you know the, the the brand penetration, the market share, the, the the salesmanship, and the skills. Who just goes? I'm gonna I'm gonna um, compete here on a, at a fee level, and I'm gonna cut my fee to the point where it's 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 almost too good to refuse for um, for a vendor.
0: Yep, and we'll in- just oversee the service offering completely, sort of plummet from an industry standpoint.
1: Yeah, and so you know the parallel in the property management industry is. Uh, look, you know, here's a here's a uh, you know a semi-automated service or a, a decentralized service that can we can manage your property for you know let's call it a you know 100 bucks or whatever, and and, and I think I think the risk is that it's it's going down a similar path to um, to the purple bricks model where the personalized service and the advice and the emphasis on advice is removed in place of efficiencies and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and I was having a good read through some of the, uh, some of the, the, the forums yesterday on one of those. And, and one of the, one of the representatives of one of the prop tech companies uh, was answering, answering some, some fairly pointed questions. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't comment, but I was certainly, I was certainly uh, alive to the fact that, you know, when people were, were talking about, you know, or, or getting toward, you know, the personalized service part of it, it, it seemed to be lacking. So, you know, to the point, I think that the, the prop tech industry has a, has a very uh, valid role and a very crucial role in bringing efficiencies into the market that are long overdue. But I think, I think um, you know, the best outcome is that an agency will leverage those, um, those various tools to the benefit of their landlords that go hand in hand with, uh, you know, a good sound advice model that they provide.
0: Yeah, and that I think is the best that we can hope for. I mean, um, technology in the property space is is definitely welcome and called for and perhaps needed in a lot of industries that may be a little bit behind the time. Um, but yeah. it's, yeah, leveraging those in the hands of experienced people. Speaking on, sort of sticking with that um, disruption side of things, although this is not necessarily disruption, but it's something that is really changing in, in your spaces. There's, there's been a real influx of buyers, agents in Australia. I'm wondering, are we moving a little bit more to sort of an American model where people are advocated for on the on the front end a lot more. Um, what do you sort of see playing out here, and do you think this is a positive thing overall for the industry?
1: Yeah. Well, look, I think the North American market is probably one of the most mature markets on the planet in terms of you know embracing the model of representation on both sides of the equation. Uh, much to the horror of uh, vendors here in Australia, if they were to know that land, that sellers in that market. Uh, they pay 6% uh, commission. So they, they pay 3% to the selling agent and they also have to provision 3% to the buyer's agent. Um, so I think that's probably a little known fact here and I I, I, I certainly don't propose that's a model that can be coming in, mm-hmm. but but certainly the embracing of having advice, uh, you know, having advice or buyers having a representation in, you know, in these... In, in a, in a pretty large, pretty large and significant financial transaction. So, um, so yes, uh, we are a, a, we are a, a market that is is fairly young by comparison. We're probably around I think eighteen or nineteen years now, but it is growing and evolving at a rate of knots. And it is certainly as it's becoming more and more on the public consciousness, there are more people who are deciding they'll give it a crack and, and move into the industry. So it's it's like many industries that are go you know going through I guess what you refer to as a purple patch. Um, People think they'll try their hand and have a crack and how hard could it be? And, you know, and and so there's a bit of an influx. So I think, you know, some of those entrants will be a welcome addition to the industry. You get the right, the right fit, and the right backgrounds, but there'll also be some that may not necessarily be the right fit. And it's really up to our industry to, you know, do what we can to self-regulate whilst the government's still getting its act together to do so. Mm. Um, and, you know, at the same time, it's up to us, Um, to educate the general market about how to differentiate between a quality operator and and some of the others.
0: Yeah, I I, I completely agree. And I think we, we, we definitely need more advocacy on the buyer side. Often we're dealing really exclusively with the people that are incentivized to not help us. They need to help the help the vendor. So, yeah, as you say, it's it's good to have some more help on that side of the equation. But, um, yeah, I guess with the new entrants, uh, the cream will rise to the top and there's a lot of new entrants that come into real estate sales in the boom times and then the market normally sorts them out on That's the other exactly end right. of the cycle sort of thing. That's where, exactly right. Where do you see opportunities for investors in the market that we're we're at at the moment.
1: Well again, I think we just need to come back to putting into context that, that the word opportunity is is relative to the individual's particular needs. So I don't want to sort of bang on too much. Here, about here
0: that. I am asking the wrong question. I just I want generic answer. I want you to say buy townhouses in Balmain. <laughs> Great. Or
1: we'll buy a townhouse in Balmain if we can afford it.
0: That makes it sound like I just bought one, but no, I do not have any Balmain property holdings, and that is just a hypothetical. Look, I
1: think I think generally for clients who are seeking long term capital growth, um, and can and can. Um, they understand that the the relative rental yields are not going to be as strong as in some of the other, other regional areas. Um, the major markets currently showing value are Adelaide and Brisbane. Um, you know, they are, and I'm talking about houses at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll refer to units in a moment because both, um, both of those asset types are performing a little bit different in each of their respective markets. Um, so from a major cap city standpoint, uh, Adelaide and Brisbane are probably the two ones that are the, um, showing the most value at the moment. Um, interestingly, uh, Melbourne and Sydney, you know, they were sort of moving off the back of the cycle. And now we're sort of looking at them sort of coming back into sort of almost sort of back to 11 o'clock on the old property clock, 12 o'clock being the peak and six being the trough. Mm-hmm. Um, for clients who are seeking more of a balance of growth and income and, um, uh, you know, not to um, sort of reference too much the racing industry, but the old Quinella, you know, where people say, look, I want the growth and income. Um, They may like to look to some of the major regionals currently showing value, such as Bendigo and Ballarat. Um, Both of those markets have significant government infrastructure and private sector project spends on the go. Their populations are trending upwards, their affordability index is quite high, and their respective medians are uh, below their long-term average, which suggests good opportunity. So you know this is all underpinned. You know these choices and decisions are all underpinned by sound research, which which is is probably one of the takeaways of today. Um, and for clients who may be looking at a you know a you know high income asset, again I referenced it before. They may be at a point in their investment careers where it's not so much about growth. Um, perhaps a commercial asset in a major cap city might be worth considering. But again, the caveat on all of that is to consider your own circumstances and um, you know and to relate that back to. Um, you know, which market might be appealing for you.
0: That's awesome. Some good general advice there and enough sort of meat on the bones for people to be furiously Googling these these different (laughs) locations and opportunities. Um, I want to sort of try and ask you, such as my style, three questions in one. Um, Mm, You can be thankful that it's only three because often <laughs> it gets as obtuse as eight Bloody but I, yeah, yeah <laughs> i i wanted to know um what sort of your motivation for for starting your your business galton co was um what sort of i guess the menu of the services are and and also there's a an interesting little altruistic side of the business
1: as well that i wanted you to to showcase sure um well, look, the motivation for starting Galt Co. Was, was, you know, I wanted to build a brand from the ground up based around, you know, some, some core values and those values being you know, generosity, knowledge, uh, connection, um, authenticity and loyalty and, and really deliver a quality service offering um, to my clients. Um, the name Galt is actually uh, my late mum's family name. Uh-huh. So, so it's a nod to family without being sort of too self-congratulatory. Uh, um so my grand <laughs> that's not
0: uh ramon mitchell by his agents
1: uh, Esquire. no no I, I i looked long and hard at that and then thankfully <laughs> opted against um so my my grand grandfather Hugh got Hugh he settled the land out uh, in uh, young and uh, nearby Grenfell, which is about five hours west of sydney and he was um he was quite a, a pillar for the local community um so he um he was a um, um a pastoralist and um I don't know if you've uh, spent much time out in uh, in rural land, but some of some areas get some pretty biblical mouse plagues, and um, they they can really decimate decimate crops and stores, etc. So my my granddad was quite instrumental in in developing um, mouse proof silos. Aha. don't ask me how they're built, but um, but they um, what he then did was he then provided storage facilities for some of the surrounding um, uh, farming families. Which allowed for the preservation of their crops and obviously their incomes and livelihoods. So, you know, I think in the in the spirit of doing you know, making a living, enjoying what you're doing and at the same time doing for something for someone else, I think that's that's the reason why I've I've started this brand.
0: Awesome. And I mean, that's um that's a pretty cool pretty cool story, a pretty cool background with your sort of Captain of Industry, ancestor. There, you've got. This is all taking on a very old money theme. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sorry, Dick,
1: Dickensian isn't it? it, is, isn't it? <laughs> Still um, on that theme.
0: Uh, what about the menu of services? So, if people are, are wanting to get in touch with you, what sort of things can you do to to help them, and and how do they get in touch with you while we're there?
1: Yeah. Well, look, I think I think that really at the heart of it, we're here to have a conversation with with um, with people who have got an interest in property. Um, how do you like that for general, um, you know, if they're thinking of buying, thinking of renovating, thinking of selling, not sure what to do um, and just want some independent um, advice, um, you know, what's uh, Maslow said to every man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail, you know, you ask a selling agent what you should do and I'm pretty sure we know the answer. So, um, you know, we're, we're here to be a sounding board and, and to provide, provide guidance as and where required so an investor contemplating investing we'll have a discussion we'll work through some of the things that we've touched on in this conversation why they're investing you know that's the first question why are you doing this what do you want to get out of it and then sort of start to you know sort of peel back the layers on that side of thing and then then pause that and look at the general market conditions and just help them better understand and gently challenge some of their investment investment ideas to make sure they're sort of sitting off on the right track so Investment advice and then buyer's advocacy services are sort of there at the heart of the business, um, as is, you know, the, prop, the property management, which is a core service offering for our business, where we we understand the importance of, you know, getting the best out of an asset and looking after your tenants and making sure the longevity of the assets there. So, um, you know, that that sort of sits at the heart of our business.
0: And tell us about the altruistic part now. Just, I think this was maybe in in beta test when we when we caught up. Am I am I jumping off too early on that?
1: No, no. Look, it's we haven't launched it uh, formally, but that's fine. We're um, part of um, part of uh, you know what we do is about trying to sort of do a little bit for some other people, and so we're we're, we're launching what's called guilt giving. Um, and what that is is. Uh, you know, it's not new insofar as, you know, um, supporting charities, et cetera. So, you know, the more the merrier there. But what I want to try to do that's a little bit different is um, where, you know, I donate 10% of all uh, my business revenue to a charity of, of of my client's choice. And so, you know, again, we we all have different experiences along the way and different things that mean give us different meaning. And so, you know, different charities will resonate differently for people. And so what I've done is I've, I've put together a list of charities that, um, that, that I think um, have a good broad span of the general human condition, um, where there's still some meaning in there for some of my personal experiences. So um, uh, Victor Chang, uh, the Victor Chang um, Research Foundation is, is a fantastic foundation and, um, you Know the, the personal association there is as my dad actually designed St. Vincent's Private Hospital, which incorporates uh, the Victor Chain Cardiac Ward. Wow, um, RSPCA, um, you know, being an avid dog, dog lover who isn't, yeah, um, there's Lifeline, there's Starlight, uh, there's WWF if you're into your wrestling, <laughs> <Nice>. um, <laughs> Wrestle Pandas, Wrestle Pandas, and then of course, uh, Wayside Chapel. So, um when I sit down with, with a client and they choose to engage in services, what I'll then do is say, well, look, here's a list of charities that we're currently supporting. And if um, pick one of those which may resonate a little bit more for you than others and we'll happily donate 10% of, of our agreed fee to that uh, to that course.
0: Love it. Great initiative there and good on you for that one. How Thank do people get in touch with you, Ramon?
1: Uh, well, um, our website is gault, Um so always... Always available there. I'm on LinkedIn and you can just drop me a line at uh, Ramon, R-A-M-O-N, at galt.com.au. um my phone and contact numbers are on the website.
0: Easy, easy. This is nice and easy in the digital age of finding people. <laughs> so just to, to wrap us up, um, if there's one piece of advice that you can give to property investors specifically, what would that be?
1: Look, know what your goals are. I mean, know what you're trying to achieve. Um, do your research and then get some advice independent advice
0: i think all the best advice is is remarkably simple and uh, there's no deviation there but i think that's absolutely gold ramon thanks for being so generous with your time it's been a real pleasure
1: that's my absolute pleasure thanks for having me cheers thanks mike